Once again, thank you all for joining us. This is Nuance, and I am Mike Scala, joined, as always, by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip-hop artist and the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Cold, man. I don't I don't like this uh this idea of heading into to fall and then after that winter. This sucks, man. I had to put a blanket on my bed. It's just trash. I gotta say in New York we had really good weather today, even though it is the fall. It feels like the end of summer where it's not too hot, but just right. Yeah, but y'all are drowning over there. What's what's going on? We were. We had a lot of rain for basically a week straight. And there was even a state of emergency going into the weekend. But the rain has stopped. Weather is nice. Of course, there is still some residual damage to deal with. But luckily, we're on the other side of that. Now. So it was it was all rain. Um, there was no other uh, circumstance. It was just that much rain was going on out there. Yeah, rain for pretty much all week, and uh, they said we were getting part of a tropical storm, I guess. But just a lot of rain and flooding that came, you know, that comes with the rain. That's crazy. That's crazy. Were y'all um, in any sort of dire straits where you were at? No, nothing like your story where you were holding on to the roof that time. It was the monsoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the biggest inconvenience for me was I was going to go axe throwing on Friday and. This place in Brooklyn is pretty busy, pretty popular. And so you are best advised to make an appointment if you're going to go. And so I made an appointment online for Friday. And that's when the state of emergency came, place closed. Now they're saying I can reschedule my appointment for another time. I actually tried going back on the Saturday because it wasn't raining Saturday anymore. By Saturday evening, it had stopped. But the place was closed all weekend. And so I wasn't able to go back and try to get my axe throwing in. And so now I've got this appointment made that I'm going to try to reschedule for some other time because I already paid for it online. Um, okay. Axe throwing. Never done that. It's pretty cool. It's a way to get some aggression out, I would say. It's like darts, right? But you're throwing an axe, and so it feels better. <laughs> it's, it's more Have dirty. you done it before? Yeah, yeah. A few times. Really? Wow. Absolutely. Actually... Went there on my birthday. I guess it would have been two years ago now. I had some friends join me. We had a little axe-throwing party. Wow, okay. Yes, I I really enjoy it. Though They tell you not to wear open-toed shoes because if the axe falls on your foot, that's not good. I don't think uh, the little shoe is going to keep you from losing your foot to an axe. It's an (laughs) axe. It cuts trees. But it depends on how high it's dropped and, you know, the angle and where it hits and whatnot. Okay, okay. I'll have to try that sometime then. Yeah, yeah. And they have rules. You know, they give you a little training uh, ahead of the axe throwing session so that you know what you're doing. They don't want you handing off the axe to someone because that could be dangerous. They actually have a little tree stump on every court where you put the axe in and then the other person comes and takes it out. This way you're not passing the axe to each other. Right. And, you know, they, they do things to try to keep you safe. Although it's funny, as a lawyer, I look at the disclaimers they make you sign. And I think to myself, there's no way I would advise anyone to sign this. But of course, I sign it anyway, because I want to throw the axes. 
but it's, it's like really if you read it you know i don't think most people read all of it because people just don't it's like so much to read it's like yeah yeah scroll to the bottom side it, right but i'm actually sitting there reading it and it's basically saying you might die doing this and there's nothing you can do your family can't come after us for a dime if you die tough luck you know <laughs> i mean i would expect that to be what you would sign though yeah I yeah, would explain. Funny. I mean, if, if you read it, right, you might lose a limb, you might lose a foot, you might lose, you might lose some fingers. It's not our fault, no matter what. It's never our fault. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can, I can, I would expect that. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that you don't see, you don't see disclaimers like that at like amusement parks. <laughs> you know, like especially like those fairs that pack up and move, like with like you know that that go around from town to town. Because there's there's such a big chance of of there's something going wrong, right? Because they're they're broken they're they're set up and broken down so much. There's such a there's a big window there. You know, it's not like a Disneyland where like it's always in place. It doesn't move, right? Well, there is an assumed risk in the law for situations like that. So you don't always need it to be explicitly disclaimed in a contract. Of course, it helps. It helps protect the business or you know whoever from liability. But for example, if you go to a baseball game, you're assuming the risk that a ball might right. be hit your way, right? It's kind of just wait, 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 wait. I didn't agree to that. <laughs> if, you could, if you buy a ticket to a game, you go onto the game, you're assuming the risk that, yeah, you have to know that. Now they do things to try to keep you safe. Like now they've got netting up, which wasn't always there, but they do right. they try to keep people safe. And it doesn't mean that they're shielded from all liability, right? If they do things that are negligent, there still could be a cause of action there. But it means that just because something might happen to you doesn't automatically give you a win over them in court because you are also assuming at least some of the risk. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You know, they do things that are negligent. You know, they don't follow the proper standard of care for what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Then you might have a case. But it's funny because reading this axe contract is almost one step removed from them being able to literally murder you with the axe and say, but you signed a disclaimer saying you wouldn't hold us liable. Imagine that. Hey, look, you signed it. I'm allowed to chop off your legs. Yeah, yeah that's kind of how it reads. It, of course, it's not really that. I mean, there's only so much you can legally disclaim, right? We can mention that. A common thing is you see a sign oftentimes at a car wash. Right. We're not responsible right. for lost items. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. But that doesn't give them the license to go in and actively steal your stuff either. I mean, there is a line there. Right. It doesn't mean that they're shielded from all liability in all circumstances. Right. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. To be a reasonable circumstance, you know. But yeah, when you are going there throwing axes, especially when you sign that disclaimer, you are assuming some of the risk. If you drop that axe on your foot, hey, you were warned that could happen. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So anyway, it I still, is. A, I still want to try it. Yeah, no, you should try it. And really, it's a good time. And, you know, there are small axes. You throw them there. there. It's, it's nothing really scary. It's, it's really fun. You know, it's just, I don't know. There's something about that, about an axe in your hand. It just kind of, I guess, gives that image of, like, masculinity, you know? Like, sometimes I get this idea, just this feeling that I want to go chop wood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, Primal just, instincts. Yeah, I just sometimes get that, like, you know, I just want to be chopping wood right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was there. The first time I went was with one of my friends, and we were joking about, oh, this is a target. You know how you see, 
I guess people do it in real life, but often you'll see it on TV shows or in the movies where they'll have a dartboard and they'll put a picture of someone they don't like on the dartboard and they'll be throwing darts at the person. Right. Right. So that was the joke. They were like, you know, pretend you're throwing an axe at this person who is mean to us or whatever. It was like, you know, it was fun, like a fun way to get aggression out in a productive way. Uh, who are you throwing axes at? I don't even remember. This was a few years ago. But, you know, you, you can only imagine political opponents or people talking trash about you in the media or whatever. True, 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 true. That's funny. Speaking of politics, I guess. Yeah, it's a lot going on right now. On. And before we get into the big news, I wanted to mention this as I look at my calendar on my phone here. There is someone who is adding events to my calendar. And I believe they're thinking it's their calendar. So I would love to know who this is. And it's really just pure curiosity at this point because I keep getting these events on my phone for these cryptic things. That's what makes it interesting to me. Now it says mint due date. Mint is in quotes, Opinski due date. That's in quotes. It seems very mysterious. And I don't know, like, almost like- Well, is this your Google calendar? It is Google, and it's a, it's a calendar that I'm subscribed to. It's one of the campaign calendars. So it seems to me that this would have been someone who previously was given access to a campaign calendar to add events to it, either an intern, a consultant, or a staffer. Um, they're not realizing that they're adding events to my calendar still. I think they believe that they're adding to their own calendar only, but not realizing what's going on here. So I think I've there's edited a couple of a few of the events to see if I can get their attention. Have you ever tried talking to someone through Google calendar? No. She edited one of the events to say, who is this? And then respond. And so now there's one on here that says my first payday. So I'm thinking maybe they're paying more attention to that one. So I put after my first payday, congrats, but really who is this? So um, I'm just curious change, as to who it is. You can change the settings. So but then to, I'm not going to know who it is, right? Oh, you, so you want to know who it is. I, yeah, I thought I'm, you, I'm trying to figure out who it is. That's all it is. I figured you'd want them to stop posting on your calendar. Well, I just would like to know who it is. And some um, people would be like, well, how come you still have all these people with access? First of all, they don't access my private calendar. There are calendars you can subscribe to. So we were able to create certain calendars, for example, for the campaign. And then people would have access to those particular calendars, which I happen to follow. It's like a feed that I'm following, right? right? And so it enabled people to put events on those calendars that I would be able to see. And we kind of have a rolling process here, I guess, where, you know, if we're not actively in a campaign, then people don't really need to have access to all the stuff. But there are some people who still will help me along the way. Maybe they might want to give me an event to go to or post something that they want me to see. And so, you know, I'm not quick to to basically go on there and take away everyone's access, especially if I'm right. thinking maybe there might be another campaign where we would have to put them back in, you know, it's fine. So I don't really care about that. Like I said, it's not like they have access to any private information of mine. It's just a calendar that was set up that I happen to follow, but it is being apparently misused. I think they're using it thinking that it's their own and not realizing that that is a, a calendar that I'm seeing and it's being pushed to my phone as well. And so right. at this point, I just would like to know who it is. That's all. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's odd that it doesn't show who the poster is of the event. It does not. So let me see. I can open this up. That's, that's kind of odd. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You got James checking in here. Hey, James, what's up? 
What's up, James? Um, yeah, I'm looking through it right now. It's just a skull calendar. And that looks like they're a fight. This is why it's interesting. Aside from all these mysterious quote entries, like where they're speaking in code to themselves, it looks like there are fights. At least mm. that's how I'm interpreting this. So there's one that says, Makachev v. Oliver, comma, Costa v. Chimeyev. Is it a UFC thing? Is it a MMA thing? Is it a boxing thing? I really don't know. No. Maybe it's tennis. Tennis. I don't know. But there are names in here. There are events that have names of people apparently going against each other in something. Mm. Mystery. 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 Yeah. At this point, I just would like to know who it is. That's all. <laughs> true, true. Well, if anyone's watching and yes. it's you... If it's you, if it's you, let me know, because you seem to have a very interesting life that you keep sharing the details with me. True, true, true. All right. I guess the big news, we can start with that, huh? Let's get ready to rumble. All right. Speaking of boxing, right? Yeah. See? Segways. Check it out. There you go. So, Speaker McCarthy has been ousted as the Speaker of the House and this is historic because it is the first time in U.S. history that this has happened. And every Democrat in the House voted for it, along with eight Republicans. And so you put that coalition together and you had enough to remove him as House Speaker. For the first time ever, I mean, that's just, I think, a testament to the times that we live in, right? These really are unprecedented times that we find ourselves in. Right. And I mean, I mean, it's no secret he had a rough time even just getting in, right? No one really wanted him in. That was the Republicans nor the Democrats really wanted him in. Um, but yeah, this is it's crazy, crazy times. Right. Um, apparently there was a vote that the speaker, well, former speaker now, was putting up, right? He was trying to get the Congress members to vote on a spending bill or a package of spending bills. And the Congress members complained that there would only be 90 minutes to read all of these bills and cast their votes. They wanted more time and they were not granted more time. And so I think that became a major source of the tension. Of course, the subtext of all this is it's really a civil war on the Republican side with more conservative members making certain demands that Mr. McCarthy was not abiding, right? They were, of course, talking about a shutdown of the government over the migrant issue. That was a big part of it. And so part of those demands were more border security and the like. The spending on the war in Ukraine played a role in this. Um, it seems like there were enough Republicans who, like you mentioned, most likely voted against McCarthy in the first place, who were able to get on board with his effort to remove him. I think like, I mean, there's, a, there's you know, several things to unpack there. Like the whole, I mean, the voting issue part that that should, to me, that shouldn't happen. That, that's that's ridiculous that people would play those type of games when we're talking about bills that are going to affect the country. There should be time to debate that. It should be not nothing like that should ever be rushed. That that 
the people shouldn't stand for that. So that's that's an issue. I think with this ouster, the way that it's it's happened with the Democrats um, being in solidarity, like they were, you know, against him even getting in, being in solidarity with the vote, those Republicans that didn't want him in either can step back and not vote, even if they want to, and then they can blame Democrats, even though they might have wanted to. You know what I mean? Like they get a pass on this. You're you know? There are enough representatives to vote against him that not everyone needs to join that. There are some who can just take a step back and not vote because he's going to be out. Right. And so then they don't have to take, they don't have to step out there and, and be a part of it. And yeah. then they can be, and then they can still hold on to their line of, of anti Democrat rhetoric or or not agreeing with anything the democrats do yeah. and then still be like oh yeah we're republicans but even though secretly they wanted him out too right you know I mean? it's interesting though because the republicans who voted with the democrats on this were mostly the more extremist republicans right the ones who are unabashedly on the far right and and mm. really are further apart politically or ideologically from the democrats than most of the Republicans, right? So politics makes strange bedfellows, right? Because these are the far right Republicans who are saying the speaker in effect is too moderate for them. And they're right. gonna actually team up with the Democrats to get rid of them. So isn't that kind of right. ironic, I guess, in a sense that these are the Republicans who are really, really, really Republican in, in a sense, right? They're really conservative, but they're the ones who are teaming with the Democrats instead of the more moderate republicans who ideologically would be closer to the democrats yeah but i I do get it though because if he was trying to be more moderate or at least uh, at least appear so and they're very extremist they would have wanted someone that's going to be out there and be as extreme as them so they're probably unhappy with him. and their interest is not pragmatism their interest is being ideologues right 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 and so i think I mean, he isn't he is an extremist in his own right. Um, but you know, with with pushing Pat pushing the the to keep the government open, even though lots of people in his party didn't want didn't want it to happen unless they got their things met, um, that would upset them because you know, look, you're not towing the line, you know, but he does have a responsibility as speaker of the house um to 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 kind of balance both sides to some degree and so even if we don't agree everything that he's done you know making sure the government stayed open was part of his job yeah and that's the difference that we see often between politicians people who really are there to be elected officials and do their job as government officials and people who are really more activists right they get into politics but they don't really have the skill set or an interest in governing on behalf of the people and understanding that compromise is often needed. And maybe you have your beliefs, but everyone has their beliefs. And in order to come to a good solution, it requires conceding some points, not all points, but you know, working with people because it's a, it's a legislative body. You're not one person controlling all this. You're working with hundreds of others. And so there are those who I think voted against the speaker who don't really have that in them or you know that's not what they're about they're not about governing they're right. about making noise they're about being active i call them activists right they they're the ones who want to go on twitter and 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 yell and and, and put right. the sound bites out right maybe go on the media with a soundbite but they're not really interested in doing the work of the people right 
and 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 not to say that McCarthy, you know, is, um, but on this one point, as far as keeping the government open, um, you know, I think it appeared that he put the country before the ideology. At least on this point. <laughs> yeah, I think he was trying to do his job as speaker. Now, right. it's not to say that he was a good speaker or he didn't deserve to be ousted. I mean, that's all <laughs> right, right, right. conversation, right? Um, but it is interesting that you had these eight Republicans who were clearly driven by these ideological agendas. Teaming oh, they wanted to shut it down. Who just didn't like them. Yeah. Um, on the point of not giving people time, I dealt with that myself when I worked as council and legislative director in the New York State Senate. We're going to talk about some of the bills sitting on the governor's desk in New York. So we'll get to the state side of things in, in a few minutes. But we dealt with that. At the time, the Republicans controlled the state Senate in New York, and we were going through the budget process where you have to vote on a package of bills. And it happens very quickly because there's a due date that the budget is supposed to be done. And then sometimes negotiations don't go the way that they're hoping. And, you know, maybe one side wants one thing and, and they're saying, we're not going to budge on this. And the other side is saying, there's no way in hell we're going to go for that. And you come to an impasse. And in an effort to try to meet the deadline and not go too far past the deadline, but often happens is you're there until four o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it, you're there for more than one day at a time, but with no breaks. This is what happened to us back in 2016. We were there in the Senate for, I think it was two or three days straight. Um, it was just naps. I mean, that's what it was. I, you know, I was a council of Senator Sanders at the time in the Senate. He would take a nap in the office while I would be in the Senate chambers and then after a certain amount of time, we would switch. I, I would go, I would take a nap, and he would he would do it because there was no there was no break. It wasn't like you would, you would work for eight hours and go home. We were there for days in a row. So part of what we were struggling with at that time was is everything was all last minute. The Republicans controlled the Senate. They were dumping these bills in our lap and expecting us to vote for them without really having a lot of time to go through them. And of course, you would have staffers. I would be one of the people responsible for that, we would try to break it up. So let's, you know, just picture it's four o'clock in the morning. We've been working for almost two days straight now. Everyone obviously is very tired. They're dumping, I don't know, you know, 500 new pages on your desk and saying, we're going to vote on this package of, of, of legislation in the next uh, half an hour. And so what the Democratic conference would do is try to break it up where they'll say, okay, you know, I'm going to be assigned I don't know, 50 pages. And then you know, maybe you have enough people who could each be responsible for a certain chunk of it and come back, report back to the conference with our findings, our recommendations. I would say, okay, I looked at my 50 pages. This is what it says. This is what I think we should do. We should support this, not support it. We should make, suggest these changes or, or whatever. But a part of the game was we're going to dump all of this on your lap last minute and not give you a lot of time to go through it because they knew that we were up against the wall, right? We were trying to avoid being late on the budget. And of course, it's basically the same thing can happen, right? It can lead to the government shutting down and disastrous consequences. And so in order to avoid that, they knew that we were going to try to get something done. And I think they used that clock to you know, the clock factor to their benefit and, and saying, you know, basically we control the House. We're the ones that are putting this legislation together. We're running the show here. So they had more time to go through it, but they were dumping on, on us last minute and not getting us time, which gives us less time to object. Yeah, and I, 
I, I don't that gives a bad taste in my mouth and i'm sure both parties do the same thing but you shouldn't be allowed to do that these are bills that are going to affect millions of people's lives they need to be mulled over properly people should be able to do their due diligence and if and if you're trying to force something through like that it's you're probably trying to be slick right and so that you know that's just not a good look um uh, for for the people for the for the country just for the process in general i don't i don't think yeah they were definitely trying to be slick it's just that you also knew that because they had the majority right we're running the show and so even in terms of the substance even in terms of what gets passed you, you know you're kind of at their mercy to a certain degree and so you know that a lot of the agenda is going to be directed by them in the first place right so you're really fighting back just to try to get as much of your stuff in there as possible knowing that your back is to the wall for multiple reasons right the fact that they control the process but they also control the votes and so the substance is going to be largely directed by them too right yeah so yeah that's to me that just that seems like a big weak point in the process and something that shouldn't be allowed well yeah the question is i guess how would we reform that right let's say we're in a situation where the budget is about to be late what happens then i mean do we allow the government potentially to be shut down for the sake of giving people enough time to read the bills um or set a cutoff point that nothing can be introduced before this time um you know uh in this time limit like so that people have time make sure or, or a rule that that you know there must be a certain allotted time for every bill to be you know to give people time to, to look over them right i mean but, but what, the if, what if these i mean this, this is the budget we're talking about right so this legislation is funding the state right services throughout the state and so, right. so it ensures that people can get paid to do their jobs and, and these programs are all funded so right. if these bills are not passed there's no funding for them so it's hard right, to right. say you can't you know, we're going to have a cutoff where these bills can no longer be introduced because that's going to have disastrous consequences potentially for the whole state. Well, if those, I mean, instead of pushing it up to maybe a double deadline, right? The deadline to, to pass it, but then then there's a deadline to have everything finalized before it's time for the vote. I mean, because of the alternative is what we have now, which I mean, it's it's obviously what's in process. But if people are just signing stuff and pushing it through then you know it it's, can be disastrous consequences for the people if it's just stuff that people didn't even read yeah no absolutely it was definitely a game that was played and it was one that we complained about at the time i just looked back on my timeline here i took a picture <laughs> that day let's see if i can put this up on the share screen this was me working late at night and you can see all the papers that were just dumped on our desk, really the senator's desks, but it was all hands on deck, right? So all the staffers right. had, had to go through all this. Uh, let's see if I can pull this up here with a share, a share screen. Put this on. Tell me if this works for those watching the live video, at least. Yep. There you See go. It. So, yeah, that was the scene. Then this was certainly not all of it this was the latest iteration of it that stack you see those two stacks right there right that was what they had just dumped on us but they were doing it so basically a day straight it was stack, right. after stack after stack and not giving us time to really go through it right but i wrote and at the time from, this is from 2016 i said this was the scene this morning inside the chamber it was 3 a.m 
The Senate stood at ease and another unseen 600 pages were distributed. It would continue well into the morning from yesterday afternoon. I put in a 25 plus hour shift. The process needs more transparency, less holding back until the last minute. Then I said right. things that we were able to accomplish that year. So, you know, there was good to come out of it. We got the $15 minimum wage. Tipped restaurant workers were afforded at least two thirds of minimum wage at that time. 12 weeks of paid family leave, middle class tax relief and so forth. So right. there was a lot that we were able to get in as the Democratic conference. Now, these were initiatives that the Republicans largely were fighting against. But throughout those negotiations, we were able to get a lot of our stuff in. And that's actually impressive, given the fact that the Democrats were the minority party at the time. So we were doing all this work, like I said, with our backs to the wall. That has changed, right? So now the Democrats do control the Senate and they control the Assembly. And so they can get a lot more done without facing this kind of opposition. Though I'm sure the Republicans are now complaining that the Democrats are pulling some of these tricks. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy. Well, I mean, I guess from here, as far as, you know, McCarthy and what happened, so they're going to have to move to replace him. Right. Uh, he is still apparently running. So think he's going to try to get back in. I think so. I mean, at least at, at this point, right? We'll see what ends up happening. I'm seeing many establishment Republicans saying that they are supporting him as long as he's still running. Now, there's mm -hmm. no timeline for when the House has to vote. There is going to be a temporary or acting Speaker of the House who would take his place. I believe that was a Speaker pro tempore, they call that. But he was someone who put there by McCarthy, right, and establishing the infrastructure, if you wish, of the house and so you'll have someone there doing those duties until a formal vote can be held right yeah i mean it is it is kind of what it is um you know like i said no one no one wanted him there i don't think i don't think <laughs> i don't think the people want him there either but the question is the alternative like you know who who would take his place and would they be someone who at least in a couple of decisions, he seemed to to put the position in priority. Would someone be worse? Right. And also, you know, the Republicans obviously have, I don't know, they, they've got a civil war going on. They got to figure their stuff out. But I don't know if they're going to be able to put in one of those extremists, because how are they going to get the votes? Right. Um, I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't doubt that they would want to, but yeah, like it's still got to be someone who can get the votes. Um, and we saw how, like you said, the civil war, we saw how difficult it was for McCarthy to just to, to get in. Like, I mean, what was it like 15, 16 times of back and forth or something? Yeah. At least maybe even more than that. So, um, if I remember right. There, during that time, there was talk that the Speaker of the House didn't necessarily have to be an elective official. It could that be basically anyone. Oh, right. That is so, true. They could do that. So I'm I'm putting my hat in the ring. So um, just anyone out there listening that's, that's got an ear to whoever it was, go ahead and put me up for I'm, vote. I'm sitting here at 15 rounds of voting that took to elect McCarthy. Yeah, go ahead and put me up for vote. I'll I'll do it. You know, I'll take it. You know, maybe it won't take you 15 ballots to get in. Well, we'll see. You know, would you be up for the job, Mike? 
don't know. In this climate? <laughs> yeah, why not? If you called to serve, why not? I don't deal in hypotheticals. <laughs> but, uh, it is interesting. All of these constitutionally set qualifications, like we've talked about how the Constitution says to be president, you got to be 35 and not your born citizen and not much else. And, right. so, you know, people are like, well, how can someone who's convicted of a felony? And it's like, well, because the Constitution only says this. And so right. that's been interpreted to mean only that. Right. It's the right. same deal with. This is kind of it's kind of silly if you really think about it. But when the Constitution talks about the makeup of the House, they talk about representatives from the states. Right. And, you know, it's, it's very simplistic way of setting it up saying that basically each state will have a certain number of representatives right that's been interpreted to mean you don't have to live in your district if you're going to run for congress then of course there are all laws for other seats about living in your district but for congress in particular because the constitution says that you that there are various representatives from the different states it's been interpreted to mean you have to live only in that state but you can live anywhere in the state and run for any district in that state which again i think that's kind of silly just because it says that each state has its own rep it doesn't say that anything anything about whether you have to live in a district or not or that's just how it's been interpreted because it doesn't set limitations beyond what it says there right so right. interpreted to mean that there can be no limitations set congress couldn't do it because the constitution <laughs> says what it says and if they wanted to set more limitations they would have put it in the constitution that's how it's always been viewed again i you know, i think it's a little bit of a of a stretch to look at it that way, but that's how they look at these things. Right. Well, I'm I'm a little far out of all the districts, so that that precludes me from any of it. Yeah, right. It excludes me. Democrats abroad, you can you can be a delegate to the convention, maybe right for Democrats abroad. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. Actually, so, if you still have official residence in a U.S. state, then legally you would be good yeah i'm well i don't have residence well i'm not well i guess i do kind of i'm, I'm a resident here in japan uh -huh. um but i do vote in um a state and well, there you go you, in you, a you county. have more than one residence as well so if you can show that that is a bona fide residence it's not a sham but it is right. a little you know, courts have come up with little tests, like in New York, there was a case where they talked about, well, if you have a bedroom in there, you don't have to live there all the time. Or, you know, even if you just come back every once in a while, but you, you maintain a bedroom, they've used right. that as evidence that that's a real residence. So it isn't much, it isn't, it isn't a very high bar to get over. But if you can establish that you have a residence in a state, then legally speaking, you could run for Congress in that state. Wouldn't that be crazy if I <laughs> run for Congress, like over from overseas? Yeah. Just like, it'd be kind of crazy. Yeah, that's why I'm not, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go stumping on on you know across the state. I'm gonna zoom in everywhere. Like this. you use AI, right? You have a little AI robot of you going around the state. You know, you know what? You 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 say that, and I just saw a uh, a video earlier, and and I'm, and this is coming, and I'm sure it's going to be coming and going to be used in politics as well, where there was a, a company that had an an AI voice bot that was calling people and this was a full call and they called up and they were making sales calls trying to get leads for the business and they called up and this was the owner of the business and said hey you know are you blah 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 this business and the guy's like yeah he's like oh well you know i'm calling for such and such i want to 
tell you about this opportunity that we have, this and that. And the guy's like, oh, I'm sorry, but I don't have a lot of time right now. And I was like, okay, I understand that. Um, you know, do you have time for just one question? It's like, uh, okay. And then, then they went into like, okay, just to let you know, I am an AI uh, bot um, and I'm with this company here and uh, we're offering this position, this stuff, blah, 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 and all that. And it was a full sales call. And then, and the bot ended up getting the guy to book an appointment and this and that. Um, so it's it's coming and then I, you can see it's going to be used in politics as well i'm sure like imagine an, an ai scholar calling people up with your voice saying you know well someone asked me once which i thought was a bit far-fetched but it just shows you the world that we are in someone was like do i think that an ai bot will ever become president of the united states mm, no no i mean certainly not according to the way our constitution is currently set up, but I mean, the way the world is moving, right? Who knows? It wouldn't be that crazy if someone amongst us said, I have something to tell you. Imagine that they sat down, it sounds like a, a novel now or a movie, but they sit down all their friends in a room and they're like, I've got something important to share with you all. I'm not a human, I'm a natural bot. I right. mean, I think that that's a little far-fetched, but not too extremely anymore. Right? That's something that's like almost feasible now. Right. Well, I wonder, like, so the president has a, a for presidency, like you've got to have you have to have been born here you, or you have to be 35 years old. You have to have been born here. Oh, not necessarily be born here. That's been debated. Or, or you have to be, so, so you have uh, to be born a U.S. citizen, born a U.S. citizen. Right. Um, but what about other elected positions? Are there any sort of are there any that could, oh, that that could not, might be able to win? Well, first, right. so normally they would have to be a voter. That's normally the basis, That's, yeah. right? Yeah, that would be a problem. And so, yeah, I mean, but things are changing. So we always talked about citizenship being a requirement for voting in right. municipalities and various local governments. They're starting to modify that for some elections, at least, right? And they're saying, well, maybe not. A citizen, maybe a lawful permanent resident should be able to vote in some of these elections. And so right, if right. that continues. But if it's, you know, what if at a certain point at an AI point. bot is granted lawful permanent resident status somehow? Well, I mean, you know, corporations are allowed to contribute to political campaigns. They're they're counted as people. Corporations, right, are considered people under some yeah. law. So I guess it's not that far-fetched crazy crazy future world i mean normally a corporation would have to set up a, a pact though right we've, yeah but uh i don't think it's that much of a leap i guess um especially the way technology is moving i mean we've already got an ai scholar all over facebook now <laughs> with your with your new profile pics yeah yeah ai is like doing the photoshop jobs and everything now they just yeah touching up the, the images and all so yeah, it's not. It isn't too out of the realm, right? I think it's yeah. a little, still a little bit out there, but it's getting to that point where it wouldn't be too much of a shocker anymore, which is kind of crazy in itself. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Well, I'm, I'm for one. I'm, I for one, hope the humans stay in charge, even though, even though. We probably have been the most destructive force on the planet. So maybe maybe bots make a better better choice. But you're gonna say I for one welcome our new overlords. 
No, no. I, I don't want an overlord at all. Okay. All right. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the bills that are pending before the governor. We also have poll results. And I guess we want to ask the poll question for this week, right? Right. Uh, well, the poll question for this week should be, is it going to be uh, pertaining to what we just talked about? So you want to kick off the poll question? Sure. So the poll question of the week is, did you agree that Speaker Kevin McCarthy should have been ousted from his role as Speaker of the House? Yeah, we'll see what that. Uh... Yes, James, that's an AI picture of Mike on his profile. It's AI edited. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's been going around recently. Like it's been really popular. Like I guess you upload one photo of yourself. And you then upload, this yeah, you upload, well, yeah, you can upload up to 30, I think, on this particular site. But yeah, and AI takes that that image and puts it in different situations and creates basically a virtual photo shoot of you. Right. Um, a lot of people have been doing that lately. Um, and people are using it for their, their work headshots. Um, oh, yeah. I, see, I just saw that on a lawyer's group that I'm in where people are using it. They say, look, it's cheaper than hiring a photographer or just going through the effort of doing that. You know, you can just upload existing pictures of you. And basically, AI does the work that you would do. I mean, if you hired a professional photographer, they would obviously take a lot of pictures, but you would have to change all the outfits yourself. Maybe you would put makeup on or, you know, whatever, however you get yourself presentable. And then there's often, you know, the Photoshop, right? The editing of the pictures after AI does that all for you now where you don't even have to leave your house to do it. Right. Yeah. So what, what's, uh, what app did you use? Oh, I don't remember the try, try, try it on or something like that. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I've heard of that one. There's a, there's a couple of them out there, but yeah, I'm, I, I haven't done that. I'm, I'm a little, you know, even though I'm I'm really into to technology and, and using all the, the AI stuff and, and all the computer stuff, like I still try to not I still have concerns about uploading all of my images into this AI matrix <laughs> they're gonna use to to train stuff. Because unless they're gonna delete it immediately after and not use it to train their models, you know. But right at the same time, as an artist, I've got photos and videos of myself right. all over the internet. So it's like right. You know, yeah, it kind of makes no sense at the same time. Yeah, you might end up seeing uh, a Jay Mannequin on some store somewhere <laughs> from from the images that you uploaded to some site. Like they're they're creating their models based on what you provided. Right. You know, I mean, at least cut me a check. <laughs> you know. All so. right. So poll results from last week. Yes. Poll results for last week. So we had a poll last week where we were talking about um, the the dress code issues that was going on in the Senate, where Schumer had released uh, had kind of relaxed the, the the dress code, even though they didn't really have a formal established dress code. Um, and so there was backlash by Democrats and Republicans um, against it. And and actually, since since that poll, since we that came out. Um, they have actually formalized a dress code since then. So it's not really an issue there, but we put it out to the people to see what it was that, that they thought. What and is so the new formal dress code? Are they making Fetterman wear a suit? Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I guess we will have to see if, uh, 
if he's going to show up dressed up or not. You know, it just depends. Um, but our poll was, do you believe that U.S. senators should adhere to a strict formal dress code? And so it's actually the results are actually spread out here. Um, 55 percent. Oh, no. Twenty nine percent say yes. 16% say no. And then I added a third option that said, I don't care as long as they get the job done. And 55% chose that option. Hmm. Um, so that's really so, no. There shouldn't be a dress code. Right. Right. Um, so we've got, we got a couple of comments here. Yeah, one person said, we'll talk about Fetter, what Fetterman is wearing when, when these pins are gone. And it was a picture of that that um, automatic rifle pin that some of those extremists are wearing. Um, someone said dress codes evolve. If not, senators would still be wearing knee breeches and powdered wigs. <laughs> yeah. There's kind of a That's point there. Custom, right? Was that ever a requirement that they wear that? I don't, I don't know if that was a specific dress code, but that was how a lot of them dressed. Right. But I guess what he's saying is we're moving away from the suits and the ties and if Fetterman's going to wear a sweatshirt and shorts, then maybe he's going to start a trend and that's how people are going to start dressing. I, I don't know. Um, this guy is saying that uh, he can remember the days when men wore suit and tie just to go out of the house unless it was for something obviously informal, talking about, I guess, in sounds more like the 50s the 30s 40s and 50s um like where people had to west up but but these days it's no longer the case even on tv news anchors are might be dressed that way but the people interviewing are a little bit more casual um so things modernized and and changed but doesn't mean anything goes more like business informal so maybe a, a relaxed form of the the business suit the thing is this it is the United States Senate. And so if we're going to relax the requirements there, aren't we relaxing them everywhere? If that isn't a formal right. setting, right. what is? Right. Um, I, I, I see what you're saying with that. I mean, that's supposed to be a big represent, a representation of, you know, the government of the people. Um, so it's, it's, again, and highly I think they, prestigious too, right? I mean, this isn't a coffee shop. So say what? I said, and it's supposed to be highly prestigious. It's not a coffee yeah. shop on the street. Right. Um, one of the points that was was in contention was that while the 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 senators didn't have to wear that their dress code was relaxed, the staffers' dress code wasn't relaxed. They had to show up suited up. Mm -hmm. So that was like, well, what's going on here? Why do they have to? And then they can come in. But right. You know, Although I can tell you from being on that side that the staffers often are the ones who do the real work. Right. Yeah. But they're not the ones that are in the public eye. And right. I think right. that's kind of a distinction. Um, one of the comments said that senators are adults and they're in the public eye. I find the idea that we give them the keys to the country, but we can't trust them to make appropriate clothing choices for themselves rather odd. Not to mention that so often dress codes are used as a tool to hurt people different from those in power. 
Mm. And it's funny because when we talked about dress codes in the context of schools, I was right. very much against them, right? Right. And and much for those reasons that were articulated there. Right. But I feel a little bit differently when we're talking about the Senate. Now, this person says we can't trust them to make appropriate dress choices for themselves. But are we saying that any way that they dress is appropriate? I mean, is it appropriate right. to show up in a sweatshirt and shorts? Right. When, you, when you're voting on, like, you know, the needs of, like, 10 million people for something, like, it's... I mean, on the one hand, you can make the intellectual argument that it shouldn't matter, right? It, it's just right. that it doesn't matter. What matters is what they're doing, how they're voting, right? right? But on the other hand, I mean, it is perception. And like I said, this is supposed to be a very formal, prestigious kind of place that, you know, I don't know. I think it warrants a greater level of respect. Now, people might say, well, putting on a suit doesn't mean respect why are we equating the clothes with the respect but it's just kind of i think how we look at things in society right, right? kind of associate even subconsciously we associate right. that we associate the suits and then that kind of attire with the more formal more important setting right and then of course like we we touched on it last week it does also bring in this idea of why is that idea um that image the idea of formal or decorum when for example, like in the, in the example I brought up last week, I think it was New Zealand where there was an elected official who was allowed to wear, wear their traditional Maori yeah. um, outfit in, in their political arena because in their culture, and he made the argument that in his culture that this Western image was not something that was in their culture. This was what they dressed as. And this was the tattoos and, and you know, the other dress. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, there is that discussion to be had, but I, at the moment in in the West, in the United States, that's our our image of formality and decorum. Right. But also there's a difference between showing up in attire that's customary or traditional to your particular heritage and showing up just with a t-shirt on or with a sweatshirt on. I mean, that's not, right. you can say, well, that's the custom of, of the American Midwesterner. I mean, really, what are we saying here? Yeah, it is. You know, this is this is Brooklyn. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and how far does it go, right? Do people start showing right. up in bathing suits and flip-flops? I mean, it, it, is any attire not considered disrespectful? And think yeah. about other settings. What about, I don't know, a wedding? What if someone invites you to a wedding and you show up with no shirt on and you know, your boxers are just, you know, shorts. And right. Is that not considered disrespectful to the people at the wedding and the people getting married? Right. I mean, there has to be, there has to be some sort of line somewhere, right? You would imagine there needs to be some sort of standard somewhere so that something like that doesn't happen. You know, I mean, nudism is, is a, is a culture unto itself. Like should should a nudist be elected nudist be able to walk into the chambers and just be butt naked on and delivering speeches on the floor? Right. But you said something interesting there, elected nudist, right? So that's, I think, part of the discussion as well. All of these representatives were elected. And so in theory, if you don't like what they're doing, which includes the way that they're addressing, the way they're presenting themselves, you would vote against them next time. Of course, we see the system isn't always that clean, right? Especially with the U.S. Senate, right. they're there for six whole years. But 
I think this is a democratic system, at least on paper, and that's how it's supposed to work, that you know, we don't put all of these formal rules on our elected representatives because the remedy is to not elect them next time. If that's the idea, right? Right. But with that's that said, the there still are guidelines that they have to follow. I mean, you do see elected officials getting indicted and, and going to jail or being forced out of office or, you know, being penalized even within the, their legislative bodies. And so it doesn't mean that it's a free for all either. There are still guidelines and rules and laws to follow. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't don't particularly want to see my senator delivering a speech with his balls hanging out like. Well, maybe not. No, I mean, I mean, if I, enough voters feel that way, then, you know, maybe they wouldn't return them to the Senate. Yeah, but I think that that I think it's slightly different. I mean, it's I think voting him in says, OK, I mean, if he's campaigning butt naked, I mean, then I guess that does indicate that they're fine with him governing in that should way. That, should that be the rule? Once you get elected, you have to show up with the same amount of clothes on as you were when you were campaigning. But I mean, I guess the argument would be like people knew what they were getting into. Yeah. If he's holding rallies and he's naked, like people yeah, knew. What you they know were what though? Doing. I don't. What? I don't know if that's really true because you would see Fetterman campaigning like that. Do you think all of those voters who voted for him? assumed he would show up to the U.S. Senate dressed the same way he did on the campaign trail. I think a large chunk of them, I don't know how many, but I think there were people who thought that, okay, but when he gets to the Senate, he'll put the suit on. Right. That's what, uh, and and I I, I agree with you. I think people, because that's, that's the dress code of the job, basically, Right. right? That's what, what we look at too, when we look at this body and these people like they're wearing they're wearing suits or, or business attire something that we consider fitting of that environment so yeah. yeah yeah you know and when you're campaigning you might not be at a formal spot right you know sure for example here in the rockaways you might be on the boardwalk you're not going to be walking up and on a boardwalk with a suit on all the time it gets very hot for that and sometimes people will even tell you hey you know, that's, we don't consider that appropriate attire here. You'll be more casual, even for a politician. They, they've told me that, you know, dress it down right. a little bit. Now, if they like me to go to City Hall or something, I'm sure they're not going to want me to dress like I'm on the Rockway Boardwalk when I'm in City Hall. So this is time and a place right. for everything. Right. So, yeah, I mean, well, for now, it seems that uh, dress code won out. Um, I still want to know how does, you know, what is a dress code? Does it apply to Fetterman? Is he going to be wearing the suit? Is Fetterman going to be wearing? That's the, you know, I guess that is the question. Um, that this is an article. Um, it said from Vanity Fair, um, and Schumer Schumer said that uh, though we've never had an official dress code, the events over the past week have made us all feel as though formalizing one is the right path forward. Um. But it doesn't say. Uh, it doesn't say whether what the dress code is. Okay. So I don't. I don't see what it is. Um, I guess we'll have to see going forward. Yeah. What maybe. Fetterman's wearing. Right. Well, we can get a copy <laughs> of the dress code, maybe. <laughs> it just. You know, it's kind of funny with the, with this. When we're talking about it, okay, we're gonna have to see what Fetterman's wearing. It just gives me the image of like 
somebody from like uh, a reporter from like e entertainment channel uh at the oscars and it, standing on the red carpet as the celebrities walk in and asking them who they're oh, yeah. wearing yeah they're gonna who get are you wearing in front right of, who are you wearing yeah get someone in front of the senate as the senators are walking in for a vote but like excuse me senator senator who are you wearing today you're looking great yeah yeah like the met gala or something <laughs> yeah yeah that'd be ridiculous all right so I was going to say, speaking of ridiculous, maybe it is ridiculous, depends on your perspective, but the governor has 372 bills on her desk. Of course, we're talking about Governor Hochul in New York. How many How many bills? 372 as of yesterday, I believe, still required the governor's signature. Now, of course, the way this works is legislation has to pass both houses, much like on the federal level. We have a version of that in the state where there's the assembly and the state senate the same bill has to pass both houses if it does it goes to the governor's desk where she can sign it or veto it or not do anything which is called a pocket veto but we're now in that phase because the session officially ends in june so between june and january there is no legislative session but the governor is now <laughs> sitting with all these bills on her desk and she's going through them signing some into law and not others and so we've got 372 as of yesterday still requiring her signature and we thought we would look at some of them to see whether we think the governor should sign them or not mm -hmm. so all right here we go one of them is called the clean slate act and this would seal the criminal records of most new yorkers after a certain number of years upon completing their sentences provided they stay out of trouble. We talked about this on the show once before. Yeah, we did. Um, I think we were in favor of at least what was being presented at the time. Right. And I think we even did a poll about this. And I think most people right. agreed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we should be trying to, to um, you know, set people up for success uh, instead of like um, anchoring them to, to things that maybe they you know, if they've paid their, their time to society, you know, depending, of course, on what it is, you know, um, yeah, move forward. Yeah, and I would like to see the language of the final bill that right. had before I could say if I would sign it as governor, but right. I do like the intent here. Right, yeah. So as if it's the same as what we discussed before, and of course, like you said, the, the, the language, the final language, but yeah, in, in general, it sounds like something that's positive. So this was controversial, probably more controversial than the last, the Reparations Commission. Now this would establish a commission to study the historical and lasting impacts slavery has had on black New Yorkers and potential reparations for the legacy of slavery. So this is just a study at this point to, I guess, look at how it might look, right? Because people talk about this idea of reparations, but there are different concepts of how you might implement it and so this would take a look at that in more detail um but at least from the the thing here it just kind of says that they're looking into how it impacted um and, didn't say anything about it and potential uh, reparations yeah and potential reparations yeah um yeah um i'm, I'm for it I'm, I'm definitely for it because the the effects are still going on um it's not just something that was in the past. So. Right. Right. Someone yeah. said to me recently that they were against the idea 
of reparations because when you give people free money, they're not going to want to work. Um, I think that's a reductive view of the concept. And, I, you know, I think it depends on how this is implemented. But my retort was, well, you know, that's not really fair because if you, for example, give someone money to start a business, that's not holding anyone back economically. That's not disincentivizing work. That's actually doing the opposite. That's actually spurring economic activity and making it easier for people to access our economy, right? And so, you know, when you're dealing with people who have been historically and still, as you mentioned to this day, are feeling the effects of that and are still faced with active discrimination being shut out of these opportunities enjoyed by others. You know, I think it's a matter really of trying to level the playing field and giving people the same opportunities that have been enjoyed by the rest of us, which yeah. is, is good for the economy, right? It's giving more people access to that economy. I don't think, I don't think uh, categorically you can say that that keeps people out of the workforce or discourages people from, from working, right? Of course, everything depends on what you're doing and how you're doing it, but that's why these things are looked at and studied. Sure. And, and, and for sure, some people maybe, I mean, if, if they're given, they're given money, they may not want to, if it, if things are taken care of, that's, I think, I think there has to be, we have to accept that those, that possibility is there, but if this action is going to overwhelmingly help the majority of people, then a few people falling to the, through the cracks is no reason to, to deter it. Right. And it does all depend on the way it's done. Sometimes for whatever reason, the word reparation scares people, but we have all these efforts in our government already to try to lift people up and help people. I mean, MWBEs has been big in New York for a while, not really too controversial. Of course, there are people who oppose it, and I'm sure many Republicans would like to undo it, but it's not something that you see people really up in arms about to that degree. It doesn't get that same kind of hires. These are programs that are out there to help women-owned businesses, to help minority-owned businesses. We've been having them for a while. The state every year tries to increase the procurement rate and give more contracts out from the state. And the city does, does the same thing to you know women and minority-owned businesses. And so we're doing versions of this already. Right. You know, it's, uh, it really shouldn't be too crazy, but I think it all depends on how you talk about it and how it's implemented. The problem, and and there's there's an issue with it right now. Um, we're talking about extremists, um, and we did talk about the the um, uh, canceling of affirmative action and the person behind that. He since that that decision at the Supreme Court, he's been kind of on a tear, and he's, he's a lawyer, and he's been on a tear challenging all these different places. He's threatening universities, uh, saying if they don't comply. Um, one of the more recent things that he's doing now is he's going after a fund, which uh, a fund that was set up, um, and I believe it was in Atlanta, that was aimed at helping black women who was disproportionately um, low on the on the funding scale, helping them get funding for businesses and that. And he's he's using that decision to go after that, saying this is this is discrimination. It's not fair. Um, and so their activities have been halted and he's been, he's vowed that he's going to do this wherever he can. Mm. So that I, that those things for helping minorities and women owned businesses could be something that come into his sights. Right. Right. There could be trickle down effects from that Supreme court decision. Right. We undo right. this affirmative action in schools. Now let's see where else we can take it. Right. So 
All right. Another one that we talked about on here, challenging wrongful convictions. This would make it easier for someone wrongfully convicted of a crime to have the conviction overturned, even if they pled guilty by removing procedural barriers to having new evidence heard by the court. Was that one of our polls as well? I know we talked about that on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we should do it if, you know, of course, we talked about the hiccup here being even if they pled guilty. Right. So if you plead guilty, you are swearing before the court that you committed this crime. And so then to come in later and say, well, I have new evidence showing I was innocent. But hold on a second. You already swore under the penalties of perjury that you did the thing. That makes it a little tricky. But we talked about how the system is set up. And oftentimes these confessions are coerced. Right. Right. So, yeah, it should be. I think we mentioned this last time. Another option uh, to say kind of like how you would settle a civil case. What if you were to say, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to fight this in court. I'm willing to take mm-hmm. something like a plea bargain, except I'm not going to plead guilty. I mean, I guess prosecutors would have to be able to offer this. Right. And right now they're not. But essentially you would say um, I'm going to accept a lower punishment than, than I would get if I went to trial and lost. But that doesn't mean I'm admitting guilt. Wouldn't that be like the similar to the no contest plea? Right. But we're talking about here accepting a deal from the prosecutor for potentially jail time or whatever, whatever they're offering. So the thing is, they often I think almost always. Right. They make you admit that you are guilty as a condition of getting this lesser punishment because they know that that makes it harder for it to be undone later. Right. And and it's a feather in their cap for their record. They got the they got the conviction. Right. But could I'm just thinking, could we reimagine how we do this i mean could it still be considered a conviction even if the person didn't plead guilty just took a deal because they knew that they weren't going to be able to fight it maybe they couldn't afford a good enough lawyer or they knew that they wouldn't get the evidence that they needed that would be exculpatory yeah sure, I don't know. Sure. so i don't know i think i think it's a good thing as yeah, a lawyer, sure. it does bother me that you know you swear before the court that you're guilty and now you're saying you're not but i do i'm not naive i understand that oftentimes people say that even when they're they are innocent it's, it's just tricky right because you know i do civil cases and i do use that against people if they swear one thing on their papers and then they come out later and say something contrary to that i'm like this guy's not telling a consistent story how can the court take him seriously he's changing his story he swore under oath this was true and now he's saying the opposite and you know you're right listening to what he's saying i mean he's basically you, you know he lacks all credibility at this point so I do that as a lawyer, right? So I understand the analog on the criminal side. Yeah, I think that the difference is the co- coercion makes it a big difference. Like right. if they go and they change their opinion and there wasn't no coercion, then yeah, we can say, well, yeah, you're just changing your your mind and you already agreed to something. But if you're coerced, there does add a different factor into that, especially if it's law enforcement doing the coercion, you know what I mean? Yeah, but then you also have to ask how many of these are coercions, how many yeah. are people who really were guilty and swore they were guilty, but now right. think they have new evidence that can challenge that for whatever right. reason. And, you know, maybe their evidence that they have isn't even good. And maybe they're just going to be trying to reopen their case because now they're sitting in prison with nothing else to do. And they're just, they're just trying to keep fighting it. Right. Right. So something to be considerate of. Um, all right. Less controversial. Diwali holiday sponsored by assembly member, Jennifer Rajkumar, state Senator Joe Adabo. Legislation would establish Diwali as a public school holiday in New York City. I think absolutely the governor should sign that one. Yeah, I mean, there are other, um, you know, religious holidays that are are set as public school holidays. Um, 
So, yeah, I don't see the issue there. I mean, it's, this is one that the community has been fighting for for a very long time, even back when I was working in the Senate. There were bills every year, you know, someone passed in one house, not the other house. So this is a real opportunity now to get it done. Now, is that a as a public school holiday? Is that a day off of school type of holiday or just saying this is a holiday? No, it will be a day off. OK, all right. Even year elections. So that's interesting. The bill would move most town, village, and county elections outside of New York City. So that's important to even numbered years. And so this is probably a, a cost saving measure because when you have elections every year, it costs the local governments money, right? To print all the ballots and conduct the elections. So what they're saying is they want to have them on even years because even years is the congressional elections. Those are the, big, the bigger elections. Presidential ones are even years, even though it's every four years, not every two years. It's always an even year. And so if they're conducting these elections anyway, it's less money to have these smaller local ones on the same day as the bigger ones. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know enough about that to, to know whether that's good or it's, it's not. Right. I think generally, generally it's a good thing, but you have to look out if it's going to cost elections. Like what if, for example, this is just spitballing, but what if there was a seat that came up every year and now they're saying, well, you can't do it every year anymore. It's got to be a two year term. Maybe you want right. to do a term and just, you know, little, little wrinkles like that that you want to keep an eye yeah, on. That does make it make an issue there. And it does. It does note here that there there was a little bit of con there was controversy over this because of the degree of change that it would entail. So again, that would you know make some significant differences. Right. But well, one thing that could happen, you know, even if it's let's say a two year term, and right now it's every odd numbered year, right? So 2023, 25, 27, go. All right. What if you're changing it to an even number year, and so it's still going to be a two year term, let's say, but it requires them to campaign again now after only one year. So they got elected right. in 23. Normally it would come up again in 25, but because of this new law, they got to do it again in 24. So they only get the one year instead of the two years. Right. And that could be uh, part of the issue. In New York City, you know, this wouldn't apply to New York City. In New York City, there are many uh, odd year elections, right? The mayor's races, city council races, these all happen on odd years. Then you have district leader races, which vary by county, even that's a little bit a little bit messy, but we, we certainly have elections every year in New York City. Right. Okay. LLC transparency. Legislation would define limited liability company beneficiaries and require those beneficiaries disclosure as a means to combat anonymous corporate ownership, like when an LLC owns rental properties. That's really interesting. Yeah. You do run into this a lot. In fact, I was just looking at it. I got a call from her reporter about the Eric Ulrich indictment, believe it or not, and who's asking me about something he saw in there. And it was the same type of situation where there was a property that was subject to the indictment. You know, apparently some conversation was happening about this one particular property. And the reporter was looking into who owned it and the transactions, the history of it, and found only LLCs. You know, so when right. you see an LLC, and it could be you know, like let's say this is uh, somewhere in Rockaway and the LLC just says, you know, Rockaway Boardwalk LLC. And it's it looks like it was set up just for this transaction to hide who the players were. Right. Right. And I mean, that transparency could be beneficial, um, especially when we're looking at a time right now with short term rentals and, and 
just the rise of flipping properties or investing in properties where a lot of companies are buying up a lot of residential homes that are kind of shutting people out from buying homes themselves so that they can, you know, make rental properties for income. Right. There's also something called the LLC loophole in the context of election or campaign contributions, where if there was a limit on the amount of money that a single contributor could give to a campaign, they would Mm. sometimes try to get around that by opening up multiple LLCs and having each LLC spend money or give money. And Mm. so you look up these LLCs and there wouldn't be a lot of publicly available information about who was behind them. But sometimes you would see them registered to the same address. Like let's say there's one guy who's trying to help a campaign. He already gave his $5,000 or whatever it is to the campaign. And now you see all of a sudden a hundred LLCs registered at his address where he lives. And each of those LLCs is now spending money. So it's a way to try to get around the campaign finance laws. Well, I mean, the easiest way to do that is to make sure that companies can't do that can't give to companies. Right, right. And of course, there are laws like that you mentioned, right? Like, for example, in New York City, corporations, LLCs cannot give money directly to campaigns. Right. Okay. Raising the age to use ATVs. Oh, that's interesting. Licensure licensure for athletic trainers. That's interesting. To add athletic trainers to the list of mandatory reporters of child abuse. That seems important. Interesting. Online accessibility legislation would require state agencies to update their website's accessibility features to adhere to the most current best practices approved by the World Wide Web Consortium. I don't know. I don't really know what that's about. Um. Adding accessibility features, maybe ability to increase the size of the font for people who have vision impairments, um, um, ability to change the colors for people, again, vision impairments. Right, right. You see, and a lot of these things all sound like good ideas, but I think the question becomes, especially in the aggregate, right? Because we talked about hundreds of these bills on the governor's desk. How much of this and generally speaking now, do we need in law, right? Do we need a law right. for everything is the question, right? Is it too much? Right. What regulation do we want to have in the state, generally speaking? Right. You know, um, it's, it's, it's like making it a law to make sure you have an alt tag on your image. Right. Because <laughs> right. people who, you know, may not you know, have some sort of a disability has the access to have it read back to them, like, but it has to be in law. Right. How much do we really want to legislate, especially when we do have more general principles in the law that could give way to liability, right? Like there's just negligence and negligence looks at the standard of care that's owed to a person. And the test is always well, what is customary in that field? And so, right. you know, if you run any kind of business and everyone in the business does it a certain way, but you you don't do that. You don't take the same precautions that everyone else does. Well, you don't need an actual law saying that you must do that if you're right. not following the standard protocol of that business or of that field or whatever you're doing, then you right. can be held negligent, right? Because you're not 
treating the person that you're dealing with with the ordinary standard of care that would be expected in that situation. So not everything needs to be an official law for you to have liability. You could sue someone for doing something wrong to you, even if the law doesn't say that, you know, they, the, they must tuck in their shirt this way. Like it doesn't have to be that defined, right? They could just be doing something right. out of the ordinary that violates your rights in some way. And, and they could be held liable for that. Right. Yeah. I think, Part of it has to do with our our system and how it's set up. I mean, elected officials go in and and they're expected to make laws, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah. It, it adds to their record. It adds to what they run and stand on. So you're going to end up with people pushing laws that just are not necessary because they right. need to do. Or right, and, and I dealt with that a little bit also. It's like you know, you get to the Senate, and you know, okay, now give me seventy laws by next week or whatever. I'm like seventy. Look, where am I going? Whatever, yeah, it was like it was, there was a lot that I was supposed to do in a short amount of time, and and you yeah. do start to reach a little bit. I mean, of course, a lot of it is good ideas, but then you know it, it shouldn't be a matter of we're going to pass a law just because we want to pass more laws. You should be passing right. something you think needs to be a law, and, and in some cases, right. you should be repealing laws. So I, I agree. I think that's you know, there should, is there a specific office or body that goes to and just reviews all the laws that are on the books to to oh. put up for? Deal? It's funny though, there was someone, and usually these are conservatives. There were people who approached me, um, the senator in Albany, and their whole mission was to undo, they called it the red tape, but basically the regulations that New York has. They had a number, you know, 50,000 or whatever it was. There are all these regulations, and they were saying that it's just way too much, it's too burdensome, and it's, it's crazy. And so what they were proposing was basically a clean slate every number of years where, you know, every regulation that we had on the books would expire and have to be passed again. And that would be, it be so dangerous. Much. It could be dangerous, right? Because what if there's something that's very important and then you try to pass it and there's gridlock in the Capitol and you can't get it passed. Right. And now you don't have this important regulation. But they also wanted to go through all of them with a fine-tuned comb and see which ones needed to be pulled out. And I think we were a little bit more amenable to that idea. All right, well, let's review the ones that we have as opposed to just starting from scratch. Right. I think, yeah, that, that seems too extreme. But I think, I mean, we all heard about the stories about like antiquated laws from like 100 years ago that are still on the books that are that aren't used or enforced, but technically are still required. Like, I think there was one um, where police officers had to carry uh, something around in the to uh, clean up horse crap. And it was like an old one from like 100 years ago. So like technically patrol cars are supposed to carry this thing in the in the trunk um which is just kind of ludicrous right all right well there's a lot here we can go through a couple more quickly you'll see data on sexual orientation this bill would require any state agency commission or board that currently collects demographic information on ethnicity to also collect information on sexual orientation and gender identity i don't i don't like that hmm. Uh, I don't think that's, I think one, I think it's too personal. Um, I understand what the motivation is behind it. Um, those, the, the groups that are pushed, I would, I would imagine the groups pushing for this um, one, they're equating their sexual orientation and gender to the same as their ethnicity. And they want people to respect their gender identity choices. Right. Um, and also and they're looking at it in terms of diversity, right? If you're collecting demographic right. information to make sure that you're, bodies are 
sufficiently diverse when it comes to race, they would want them to also be sufficiently diverse when it comes to gender identity. Essentially, right? I I, I don't equate the 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 two. Um, one, I think the sexual orientation. I don't think whether someone's gay, straight, or LGBT, or whatever, um, should be part of that collection. Like the government doesn't need to know what your your orientation is, right? Um, I think it's a privacy violation there. Uh, I think it's 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 a little bit of reach too far into people's personal lives. Um, gender identity, I can see a different argument for that because it's how people want to be addressed, but also um, probably for collecting when they're using this data, it's much like a, a, a census to know what yeah. services are are yeah. are needed for yeah. certain things. Um, but well, yeah, so I would be wary of that though to see how much money, let's say, should be allocated for services that will help uh, trans folks or you know people who are gay. Maybe there are certain things that they're looking for in the budget, and this would basically be able to justify that based on the numbers that that it provides. I think there's a better argument for that for gender identity than one for sexual orientation. Okay. And then, the, but the issue with the gender identity is that the whole premise of it is that it's malleable, right? It can change. Um, people can say this week that they're, this is their identity next week. It's a different identity. And so your data that you're going to get is not going to be always reliable. Right. I mean, I don't know what the variance would be on that, but if people identify as one gender now, you think, you think six months later, or a year later, a lot of that is going to change. Uh, it's it's possible that's the at least the argument from what i what i have read and seen is that it's it's whatever you decide and i've I seen guess, i mean i guess also to be fair it's also before someone comes out as that right so like you know, let's say they're born well that would be orientation though the gender no, identity no no not orientation i'm not talking about that i'm saying let's say they haven't come out as trans yet so like they're still living their life the way that they were born so right. they didn't change after they embrace th their true gender identity right that they feel right. that they you know whatever gender they, they feel they are right well i think with with trans it's 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 a it's a little bit more of a commitment in, in a lot of ways depending on how far you go like if you don't go ahead and go with the the surgery but i'm thinking some of the other options like um non-binary or mm -hmm. male female or not male female, right. man woman um these things that you could just change on a whim if you're trans there's a little bit more that you you have to put into that right um if you're going to go for the for the full surgery and whatnot um where some of these can just yeah I, I hear what you're saying but is it not still valuable to know as of now I and mean, it could change but that's why you keep doing these surveys to know as of now what these numbers look like um there could be some value in that absolutely i don't know if it should be I'm, I'm a little wary of including some of the stuff on there. I think it's a little, you know, it's a little much, although we do sex, we do include sex on some of these things as far as demographic information. Um, to be honest, I don't know. I'd f I hear what you're saying. That it does often feel like an overreach, even when, you go, I don't know, to the doctor. I mean, I guess the doctor is more important than they have it, but certain places oh, yeah. go and they're asking all of these personal questions and you're thinking, why do I need to tell you all of this personal stuff? Yeah. Not really relevant. I know you're just collecting data or, or what have you, but it does feel like a little intrusive, like a little bit of an evasion of privacy. Right. Um, 
yeah it 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 does feels a little bit much and and for those people who want that on there i mean for them it i'm sure it's it's a positive because again there are some positive benefits that could mean certain services are, are available or shown to be warranted for uh certain identities um and whatnot but it, it just feels a bit too intrusive now to be fair any of these questions even ethnicity uh, uh sex any of those things are always opt-in questions they're always optional and people don't have to answer them so I guess there could be no harm, no file in that regard. Right. But this would require, again, it's like more red tape, if you want to call it that. It would require them to collect that information. So not that the people will necessarily have to give it up, but the agencies would have the burden of going out there and at least asking for it. Or they could just, I would imagine that the way it would be implemented would it just be like another line on yeah. on the form, right? Yeah, so they're already like, asking for They're already asking Yeah, ethnicity, you've got um whether or not you um have a disability you've got whether or not you are a veteran um you've got um your sex um so this would be just adding i guess another line on here gender identity and if you right. go for sexual orientation that as well but um maybe there should be language clarifying that you don't have to provide this information if you don't want to um well it always does it, the, any of those things that i just mentioned it's always you don't have to provide this information i've never seen i mean i've seen it but i haven't seen it on every form sometimes i'll get a form from someone and i'll just say sex race gender. i'll just put all those things it doesn't say you don't have to answer it this is i've there's always an option that says these are optional um because i believe it goes against to, to force people to disclose that would go against the um, well, especially at least in employment, it would go against the Equal Opportunity Employment Act and other things like that. So maybe on an employment form, but I know I've been mm -hmm. places where it didn't tell me. Now I know you don't have to answer it, but the form doesn't always say you don't have to answer. Oh, okay, it. okay. Yeah. Maybe that should be more clear. Right. All right. Let's do a couple more. There's a lot here, but I can go through all of them, obviously. But right. kind of fun. <laughs> Breaking leases after death. This I mean would allow the estate of a dead tenant to terminate their lease agreement with the landlord after the tenant's death. I mean, that does seem pretty important. But I mean, the lease is already broken, technically. Like, does you need a well, law? Well, no, but the thing is that their estate would still be on the hook for all of their contracts. It's very odd, but that happens, right? The estate inherits, essentially, everything from the deceased. Hmm. So, yeah, it does seem like common sense, right? Their successors didn't agree to lease this property. Why should they still be on the hook? But and, and they, from, they from a landlord, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like a landlord-tenant battle, right? From a landlord's point of view, they don't want to be screwed by the person dying and then them not being able to get the rent that they were promised. Yeah, but, I mean, the person died. There's nothing you can... It can yeah. do like the person that they're related to is not responsible for for paying that rent or whatnot Even like legally speaking they are responsible for their burdens and their, and their it's, it's ridiculous yeah. it should in my opinion it shouldn't be like i don't i don't want the responsibility of whatever my sister is like committed to like how do i know what she's committed to right but are you going to be I guess it depends on if she has children. I mean, there's all like lines of succession and all, right? But you might not be right. But all right, right. But I mean, just just saying, like for example, like you know, you know, you you've got significant student loans, right? If you don't, if you're not able to pay those off, you know, will they be able to come after your children or your wife 
for those. And I mean, you took those loans out, right? You went right. to school. That was right. something that you agreed to. It it shouldn't spread. Like the pa- the fact that people die is just oh. kind of a chance you take. Well, when it comes to renting an apartment, what if the successors are still able to occupy that apartment? Then they keep paying the rent. Sure. That's what I'm saying. So it's not it's not just the burden that continues. It's also the benefit, right? Well, I mean, that's if they continue to 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 occupy the rent uh, the the place, right? So, I mean, in yeah. the case, it would just to me, it just seems so common sense, right? If the person on the lease is the one that passes away and the family is still there, well, then whoever's in there would take over the lease and continue to paying the rent, right? If the if if it's a person that lived alone and, and they die, then the landlord shouldn't be able to go talk to their nearest relative and be like, well, you owe me rent now. Like, it, to me, it just seems common sense. Well, okay. But what about in the case of inheriting a house? Is it not similar? What about it? Well, someone bought a house, they die. Right. Now their estate inherits the house, but they, the successors were not involved in purchasing the house in the first place. Why should they have to get this house or have the the burdens even of this property they had nothing to do with the transaction in the first place well if they're if they're given it sure no but they're only given it because they're inheriting it because the person died yeah but they yeah sure they get they get it in that case okay so i mean i think the law looked at it a similar way when it came to renting an apartment the the successors get the apartment even though they don't own it they get the right to use the apartment just like the dead person had well, yeah, if they use the apartment, then yeah, they, they absolutely should pay pay the rent for it. Um, if they're not going to use the apartment, then yeah, the, the landlord should be able to put whoever they want in there. And so, right. but they, they, uh, so apparently under the law, that wasn't an option until now. If the governor signed this, it would give the estate the right to terminate the lease, the landlord, after the tenant's death, right? But, you know, without that, that would mean that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the tenant, the estate's option. Right. In other words, the they still have this apartment, whether they want to use it or not, they inherited it. Just like if you got a house, you inherited it. Now it's your problem. I don't think you can you should be able to inherit a a bill like you can inherit an <laughs> asset that just that. Like, imagine just being a, a just a, a prick and, and taking out a whole bunch of debt just right. for the fake, the, the fact of screwing over people on purpose, like. Yeah, I just took out this massive lease on on this or this massive thing on this. And yeah, it's yours now. Screw you. It just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's really inheriting contract rights, you know, property rights too, I suppose. It's it's, it's like it's everything. You inherit everything. So, but I do agree that the governor should sign this one. So That that would allow the state to opt out. There was one I did see down here real quickly, monitoring drug price hikes. And I think this is a, a big, um, I mean, this is definitely a big issue in, in, in the U.S. medical system. Um, this leg- legislation would require prescription drug companies to notify the State Department of Financial Services of their intent to raise the cost of drugs 60 days before it takes effect if the increase is at least 16% above its cost for the past two years. Um I don't really have a problem with that, depending on how stuff is worded, but it sounds like something that is a consumer protection uh, effort. Right. Um, Notify I think by the Department of Financial Services of their intent to raise the cost of a drug 
60 days before it takes effect. So I guess the only question is, and, and this goes back to probably what the custom is in the industry, but is 60 days normally enough lead in time to know the prices fluctuate a lot quicker than that? Well, the, the, the way this is worded here is another point that I, that I see here. This just is for monitoring. This doesn't have any sort of, uh, this doesn't give it any teeth in order to prevent this sort of increase. Or, or gouging. They require drug companies to notify the Department of Financial Services of their intent to intent. raise. This means they have to tell them that we're going to do it. Doesn't mean that they can get approved, have to get approval or not. They just like, yeah, we're going to do right. it. They got to tell them that they're going to do it, so that so that the people are notified that the cost is going to go up. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it could be beneficial, but I would prefer that there's a cap on drug prices anyway, across the board. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a lot of stuff. Especially when a lot that's of heavier stuff. lifting, huh? So that's heavier lifting, right? Sometimes, especially at the <laughs> local level, you're trying to come up with these solutions that might not solve the entire problem, but right. that move things a little bit in, in a better direction. Right, right. And that's why you see a lot of these things, but you're monitoring, like you said, or studying or looking at people get frustrated. Like, why don't you just solve the problem instead of monitoring it again and studying it again, looking at? But you know, sometimes these commissions are easier to get past, and sometimes they can help even if it's a matter of getting the data that you need to then do the <laughs> the big legislative package in the future right 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 and i think the last one we could look at is that that final one is probably probably uh very applicable especially out there in rockaway um where uh the the bill would make a set of standards to ensure more timely insurance payouts to claimants following natural disasters um so People need their money as fast as possible, especially in a natural disaster, especially if they've lost any, anything. Um, we saw the devastation that happened out in Rockaway um, years back. Um, you know, people need that money as soon as possible. And, and insurance right. companies will try to stall those payments. And it says here this bill has a decade-long history. So you figure it goes back to 2013, which was right after Perkins. Right. Yeah, right. And so you know that's where that comes from. I would imagine so, um, because people were still, you know, years later, we're still picking up the pieces. Um, and so this says if, if this is the first time it passed both chambers, so it has a good chance to to get into law. And I think it would be very beneficial, um, at least as it's written right here. Right. And, you know, some of the problem is you pass a law and then or at least you pass a bill and then the governor vetoes it because they say they agree with the intent behind it, but the implementation isn't going to work. Maybe they say it's going to cost too much money or it hasn't been funded, right? It's a building that right. wasn't in the budget. And so now there's no money to fund this legislation. Or sometimes they'll say that it's incompatible with other provisions of law and they kick it back. And so, you know, there are all different reasons why these bills get vetoed. Sometimes it's a political game where they don't want the, you know, the city governor doesn't want that being on their record, but they don't want to tell the legislature that. And so they'll come up with a different excuse, right? Well, we, oh, I, I love the idea, but we can't do it because of this little thing here. And, you know, these are the political games that frustrate us, but it, it does sometimes occur. Right. So great discussion on all these bills. I like this stuff. I, you know, this is what I live and breathe for. So. Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, good to be aware of, and it's important to have these things uh, out there and moved moved on, right? Because um, there's a lot that we've gone over here that 
that seems to be motivated to be of service to to people. And I think that's very important. Yes, absolutely. And I can say between this discussion and the earlier one we had tonight, the bottom line is do the work of the people. Let's try to take at least some of these political considerations out. Of course, it's never going to be that clean because it is politics we're talking about here, right? And so we have to keep that in mind. Let's not be naive to the political forces, but let's try to keep the focus on doing the work of the people and not being overtaken by the political winds. Absolutely agreed. Great bottom line. And you can find us on YouTube at Nuance Show, Instagram at Nuance Show, and everywhere where podcasts are. And then on Tuesday nights, Eastern Standard Time here at 7 p.m. ish. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we do need to do something. We'll talk about this on a future show. But once we get to that 100,000 mark on YouTube, I think we need to do something to celebrate. I don't know what it is yet. Maybe people can weigh in on that. But we have to celebrate that in some way. Are you going to show up uh, in the nude on the on the following podcast? Or maybe I'll wear a sweatshirt to the Senate. Yeah, right. I don't know. We will think about this. All right. All right. Thank you all for joining us. As always, we've got work to do, and hopefully we can do it in formal or appropriate attire. <laughs>